All right, well, if you've got your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open it to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 5. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you again for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the words that have been sung. Father, we thank you that we can come to you, we can worship you. Father, I pray now that your Word would go forth. Father, I pray that it would touch hearts and touch lives. And Father, I pray that you would do a work through your Word that only you can do. Lord, I pray especially that you would feed your people. Lord, I pray that you would use me to do it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to be in Acts chapter 5. I want to catch you up, kind of stir you up and remind you where we've come from. Uh, we talked about Luke and Acts as one volume together, as one work, two volumes. Dr. Luke writes in the book of Luke, the life of Jesus. Jesus dies pays the penalty for our sin, raises from the dead. Then you get to the book of Acts and you find that Jesus, after he's risen from the dead, he gives his disciples some instructions. He says, you guys need to stay here. Don't leave here until you receive power from the Holy Spirit. And then you're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so the disciples listen. They stay in Jerusalem like they're supposed to. Then the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. They receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And they begin to be God's witnesses in Jerusalem exactly where they are. And now I'm not just going to give you the same sort of review that we normally have. What I want you to see is that how this is going to, this review is going to play into the rest of the message. When they receive power, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, fire comes down and they receive the supernatural ability to speak different languages so that they can speak to all men, men from every nation who are gathered around Jerusalem. Remember? Little head nod means, yep, I remember. Okay. What happens as soon as the Holy Spirit descends on them and they begin to supernaturally speak other languages? The first thing that happens is that everyone around them begins to heckle them. You remember? Someone shows up and says, hey, these men are drunk. And so you have power. People who have received power from the Holy Spirit are getting ready to do a great work. And thousands of people are getting ready to get saved. And the first thing that comes up is that someone accuses these men who are filled with the Holy Spirit of God of being drunk. And so you have Satan already casting doubt on the work of God that's going on. Then you keep going throughout the scriptures and you find that Peter and John are walking down towards the temple. There's a lame man. You know the story. Silver and gold have I not. But what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Get up and walk. And this man begins leaping for joy in the temple. He's healed. And thousands of more people come to Christ. And then what does Satan do? Satan stirs up the religious leaders. And they call in Peter and John to give an account for what they've done. And then they threaten Peter and John not to preach and teach in that name anymore. So you see, Satan begins to cast doubt at the beginning. He can't stop what God is doing. He threatens. He can't stop what God is doing. And so multiple times Satan has been at work from the outside of the church trying to stop what the Lord is doing. And then we finish off with Peter and John are freed from prison. They go back to their people and they tell them all the great things that God has done. And listen to, I want you to back up just a little bit. Acts chapter 4 verse 32. This is where we finished off last week. It says this, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great 
power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was on them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. And so he said that, The result of the Holy Spirit working in this group is that this group was unified and they had one mission. And as a result of them having one mission, and that mission was, by the way, to give powerful testimony to the resurrection so that all men could hear and be saved. Now you have an example of what it looked like when people were selling things and giving them to the apostles so that no one would be in need. And we pick up in chapter 4, verse 36. And it says this, Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement. This is the same Barnabas that's going to show up 25 more times in the book of Acts. Oftentimes you talk about Paul and Barnabas. This is the same guy. So apparently he's a Levite who's from Cyprus. Okay. You remember that people who are Levites aren't supposed to own land, that the Lord is their inheritance. And so we don't know if this was a Levite who owned land in Israel and they were just loose with the law at this time, or if he's from Cyprus and he had a vacation home in Cyprus. Nobody knows, okay? All you know is that the Holy Spirit is moving. There's unity in the group. There's a need. Barnabas goes, sells whatever track of land he has, gives the money to the apostles. Verse 37. And this Barnabas, who owned a track of land, sold it, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so you can imagine what would happen at this point. There's some sort of need in the early church, and here's this man. Son of encouragement. He goes out and he meets the need with something he has. Right? So maybe they're praying that God would fit this need that they have. And Barnabas says, we don't need God to move and meet this need. I've got a piece of land. I'll go sell it and we'll meet the need just like that. Answered prayer right there. And you can imagine that if we were in prayer meeting and something like that happened, everybody would be impressed with Barnabas, right? Even though Barnabas isn't doing it for any glory for himself, everybody would be like, wow, that's, that's really good of Barnabas. That would, that would really make you step up your game, right? If you saw somebody do something great like that. Maybe you and Barnabas had vacation homes next to each other. And there's a need. I'm not knocking vacation homes, by the way. And Barnabas sells his. And you go, doggone. I used to hang out with Barnabas at the vacation home. Now he's done gave his away. What am I going to do now? And so you can see how this could, could stir up people to good works. And you could say, hey, I'll do that too. I'll give up this for the Lord. And it'll be a great thing. And you can also see how it could stir up jealousy and envy. How dare him do that? Who is he to do that? Does he think he's better than everybody else? And so what happens is that Luke gives you a good example of someone who's done something very noteworthy. And now he's going to give you an example that's not so good. We're going to read the first part of chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. And so here's a man who, as of yet, has done nothing wrong. He's sold his piece of land. He's brought it to the apostles' feet. But what he's done is he's kept a portion of it back and he laid it at the apostles' feet as if he was giving the full amount for what it was. Okay? And that, so you have one example in Barnabas of a good thing, and you have this example of Ananias and Sapphira who have just done a very bad thing. And you all know the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They're going to be dead in about 10 minutes, okay? That's, that's how the story goes. Some of you are looking at me like you didn't know they died. So 
Sorry to, sorry to spoil it for you. But uh, it reminded me back to the story of Cain and Abel. You remember back to Genesis chapter 4? Cain and Abel both bring the first fruits of what they have. Cain's offering, or excuse me, Abel's offering is accepted. Cain's offering is rejected. Stirs up in Cain all sorts of jealousy and anger. Cain goes and kills his brother Abel. And you go, wow, what gives? How did Abel's offering get accepted and Cain's not? And how did it lead to him murdering his brother? <clears throat> and you go to forward to Hebrews chapter 12 and you find that by faith, Abel offered a better offering than Cain. And so what you learn with the story of Cain and Abel is that one of them gave their offering with the right heart. One of them gives their offering with not a good heart. Because as you read through the rest of the book of Genesis chapter 4, you find that when Cain is confronted, he's very negative about things. Cain is always bringing up negative things. And he just has a, a heart that doesn't seem to want to please the Lord. Because the Lord comes to Cain and he says, Cain, if you do well, won't your countenance be lifted up? And, he, and God comes to Cain and says, Cain, where's your brother? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? And you just, you see all these negative things from Cain. And so Abel gives his with the right heart. If you remember back a couple years, a heart of worship and obedience. And Cain gives his just out of obedience. And you had the exact same thing going on here with Barnabas does his out of a heart of worship and obedience to Jesus. And then Ananias and Sapphira, they do theirs out of a heart of maybe obedience, but their heart isn't in it because they want the glory not to give God the glory. Just want to remind you that it is very possible to go your whole life doing good things with the wrong heart and everything you do be rejected by God. It's very possible. Very possible. Now, just so you know also, here's the story of two people we're walking through. And this is a word of warning in the book of Acts. And so I'm going to try to be as encouraging as I can along this journey. But the whole story is telling you, be real careful how you conduct yourself within the body of Christ. And so we're going to be as encouraging as we can as we say, listen, gang, we need to examine the things that we do. And so you keep going in the book of Acts. This is Acts still chapter 5, verse 3. But Peter said to Ananias, this is after Ananias has come, he's held back some of the money and he's laid it at the apostles' feet like he's bringing the full amount. Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard it. The young men got up, covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. So Satan has been attacking the church from the outside. These men are drunk. Getting the leaders of the community. Don't preach or teach in that name anymore. And then Satan moves his attacks from outside of the church to he works in someone's heart inside the church and he's going to try to infiltrate the church through lies. And Ananias has a piece of property and he's not obligated by God to do anything particular with it. It's his to use however he wants. And Peter says, listen, after you sold it, it was yours to do whatever you wanted with. You could have sold it and you could have bought another house. You could have bought another piece of land. You were free to do with it whatever you wanted. But what you did was you lied about it. And that's the problem. 
And Peter says, and when you did it in front of everybody, you weren't just lying to me and these people. You were lying to the Holy Spirit of God. And God judges him instantly like that. This sort of thing isn't uncommon in the scriptures. There's a thing called salvation history, right? So when you start out in the book of Genesis, you have Adam and Eve who sin. God promises in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 that the seed of a woman will crush the head of Satan. And so during Adam and Eve and their children's time period, people were saved in trusting God's promise that he was going to send the seed to solve their sin problem. You following me? That's all they knew about salvation. So they knew that sin was the problem and they knew that God was going to solve the sin problem somehow. And so through turning from their sin and putting their faith in a holy God to send his seed to save mankind and crush the head of Satan, that's what they're looking forward to. You keep fast forwarding through the scriptures and you get to the time of the Exodus where God gives his tabernacle and his dwelling place amongst men. And what happens in the tabernacle is God reveals to mankind how he's going to relate to his people and how his people can relate to him. He teaches them all about how their sins are going to be forgiven through the different sacrifices in the temple. And if you remember Aaron's sons, shortly after the tabernacle was given, they take incense and fire and they burn it and they just go into the temple and they do it their own way. Remember, God has prescribed exactly how he wanted people to operate with the temple. Nadab and Abihu, they, they take the fire and they go in the temple any way they want. And just like that, God judges them and they drop dead. And the nation of Israel has to go out and bury them. God wants you to know as he's revealing more and more things to you that he takes this thing called the tabernacle very seriously. You fast forward to the book of Joshua. God's people... He's rescued them out of the land of Egypt. He's taking them into the promised land, into a land flowing with milk and honey, where the fathers are going to command their children to obey the Lord, to keep his commandments, just like Abraham was supposed to do. And so the God's people get into the promised land, and as they're occupying more and more of the promised land, there's a guy named Achan who doesn't obey, right? The whole nation of Israel is, is fighting. They conquered Jericho. Everything goes swimmingly. God says, listen, this first city that we capture, everything in this city belongs to me. Then they go out and fight the next battle and they expect to have the same blessing from God, except for there's a man amongst them who's sinned. He's brought sin into the camp and the promised land is supposed to be this place where God's people are free to worship and obey him. And because of this man's sin in the camp, the army gets defeated when they go into Ai. And then the nation of Israel is, God, what is going on? Why are you bringing this calamity upon us? What has happened? And he says, one of you amongst you didn't obey. And you find they, they whittle it down through the tribes of Israel. They figure out what tribe it is. They figure out what clan it is. They figure out who the, the great grandpa is. And then they figure out it's Achan and his family. And they gather Achan, his family all of his livestock, everything he owns, and they stone him right there on the spot. Because God wants the people to know, listen, when you go into this promised land, things are going to be different, and you need to mind yourself when you go in there. That I'm taking you there so that you can worship and obey me, and you can honor me with the way that you're conducting yourself. And now you have... Jesus has come. You fast forward through more of history. Jesus has come. He's paid the penalty for our sins. He's risen from the dead. And now he's establishing his church. And God again is reminding his people. Listen gang. Don't get in church and tell a bunch of lies. And get involved with a bunch of sin. Because God takes it very serious. This thing called the church is a big deal. And God's going to protect it. 
even if it costs taking someone's life. The tough thing with this story is that those things all happen one time. They don't keep happening over and over and over again. When you look at the temple, Adab and Abihu, they mess up in the temple. But you fast forward about seven or 800 years, the time of Ezekiel. And during the time of Ezekiel, all of the chief priests have their back to the temple and they're worshiping the sun. And they've got all sorts of other idols set up in the temple. And you think, man, why doesn't God judge those people the same way he judged the first person who did it? And then you fast forward to Achan. Him and his whole family get killed for sinning on the way into the promised land. All he did was keep three things, right? Why doesn't he judge all of the other people in the promised land like he judged him? And then you read this story and you go, wow, God judged Ananias over a lie. Why doesn't he judge everybody else who's lying in the church? Well, he judges Ananias' wife. Go to verse 7. Now they're elapsed. This is after they've covered him up and buried him. Now they're elapsed in interval. Just a side note, just to kind of lighten things up a little bit. When you died back in Jesus' time, generally speaking, they kept you around for a little while before they put you in the ground. Right? They didn't have the same medical practices we had. And they're gonna, you're gonna stick around for a little while just to make sure you don't have a weak pulse. Just to make sure you don't pop back. Right? They kept someone on a death watch. This says in verse 6. When he fell and died, the young men got up, covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. However, this cat died, he died quick. And he died right there. And everybody around knew he was dead. And this thing happened quick. Because listen to this. This is verse 7. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours. And his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her. Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Right now you're thinking, oh, that's a bad idea. Verse 9. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in, found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. And so within a span of three hours, they had already buried her husband. And then they buried her too because she was the same lying spirit of her husband. And it says that great fear came over the whole church. That's tough, gang. God wants you to know in Acts chapter 5 that he takes his church serious. The same thing happens in Genesis, almost chapter 5, chapter 6. God starts out with creation, Adam and Eve's sin. God tells Adam and Eve, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, surely you will die. And you keep reading through Genesis chapter 2 and 3, and they eat from the tree, but they don't die right away. God shows them grace. Then you read Cain and Abel. God has he accepts Abel's offering. He doesn't accept Cain's offering. Abel, excuse me, Cain murders Abel. And you would expect God to judge him on the spot, but God has grace on him, sends him away. Cain says, my punishment is too much. 
And so God puts a mark on Cain's head so other people don't kill him. Then you keep reading and you keep reading. You go, wow, God is just doing act of grace after grace after grace after grace. And he is just being so long-suffering with these people. And then you get to Genesis chapter 6. And what does God do? He drowns the whole world. Why does he drown the whole world? Because in Genesis chapter 6, it says that he looks at the sinfulness and the wickedness of man and he regrets in his, he, he feels sorry in his heart and he regret that he even made them. And after he says that in Genesis chapter 6, it's 120 years later until he actually deals with the sin. And the whole time, that 120 years, while Noah's building the ark, it says that Noah is preaching repentance. And so even though that God has sorrow in his heart for even making man, and that the the heart of man is just deceitful and wicked all the time, he still, over the course of 120 years, gives man time to repent while Noah's building the ark. And so what I want you to see is that God doesn't... God starts out sometimes by doing something and showing you how serious he takes sin. And then he has patience with people. But in the same way that God judged the earth and drowned everyone in it, His patience is not to be taken for weakness because he will judge the earth and people in it one day. And every single person will stand accountable for what they do with themselves and how they conduct themselves within his church. I want you to go over to Romans chapter 2. While you're headed to Romans chapter 2, there's two quotes that I heard that I thought were fantastic. There's a guy named George MacDonald. Again, you're headed over to Romans chapter 2. A guy by the name, by the name of George McDonald said this, half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. I'll read it again. Half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. You see, Barnabas was the real deal. He did what he did with the right heart. Ananias and Sapphira, all they could pull off was doing what he did. They couldn't pull off doing it with the right heart. And so one's acceptable, one's not. Another guy by the name of Oliver Wendell Holmes. I have no idea who these guys are, by the way. So if you go to look them up, I don't know anything about them other than these quotes. Oliver Wendell Holmes says this. Sin has many tools, but a lie is the handle which fits them all. Sin has many tools, but a lie is the handle which fits them all. Hopefully you're over in the book of Romans chapter 2. And I want you to read this. I want you to hear this about Romans chapter 2. And I want you to hear what he says specifically concerning, (laughs) I said that all wrong, specifically concerning the long-suffering and patience of God. Because each of us have things in our life where we say things like, why do good things happen to bad people? You You ever thought something like that? And you ever thought, man, if that person did such and such, and it was so bad and affected so many people, why doesn't God judge them why doesn't god why doesn't god intervene and put an end to that right that's a very viable question that we wrestle with sometimes how does such and such get away with something that i could never get away with not to say that you want to get away with it but you just look at look at the world and you see what's going on romans chapter 2 verse 1 no verse 3 but do you but do you suppose this old man When you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same thing yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, 
not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. And so I want to finish up with just a real good word of encouragement. Maybe you're here and you're somebody who is seeking God's glory. You're here and you're someone who's seeking honor for the Lord. You're seeking eternal life. And you're seeking things that are good things. You're persevering in those things, doing good. I want to encourage you not to be disheartened by the world around you. Because we serve a God who knows who knows the heart and deeds of every man. And you run your race like a horse in the Kentucky Derby with blinders on. And you stay focused on Christ, doing exactly what it is that he's called you to, running the race that he's called you to. And I just want to encourage you to let him deal with everything else. Now, keep in mind that I'm preaching to myself just as much as I'm preaching to you. And I just want to encourage you that one day there will be a day of judgment. And God will handle it all. And he's not going to ask for your advice or for my advice. And you never have to have a sit down with God and say, God, did you know about this, 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 and this? Because he knows. Well, God, what about this, 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 and this? Because he knows. And on that day, rest assured that you're only going to be accountable for you. All right? So let's us, as God's children, handle ourselves rightly. Let's seek the things that he calls us to seek. And let's let him deal with the rest. Amen? Because ultimately, it's his church, right? Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. God, we do thank you that you are all-powerful. You're all-knowing. And Father, we thank you that you take your church very, very, very seriously. Lord, I pray for each of us here. As we stumble and fall throughout life, I pray that we would always fall forward. Lord, I pray that we would always seek your grace, seek repentance from you. Father, I do pray that we would never be selfishly ambitious. Lord, I pray that we would never knowingly lie to the Holy Spirit of God. And Father, I pray that you would help each of us to be the people you've called us to be. Lord, I pray lastly that if there's anyone here who's never put their faith in you to forgive them of their sins and give them eternal life, Lord, I pray that today would be the day they do it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would stand with us for our hymn of invitation. Great seeing you guys this week. I'm going to ask uh, Brother Dr. Tarkington if you would close us in prayer.